We now come to the segment of our service where God speaks to us through the reading of his word and the teaching of his word. As we hear God's word read to us and taught to us, I encourage you to put away your phones and to pull out your Bibles instead and to grab your notebooks and lean in and listen carefully as God speaks to you today. To help us with the reading of God's word, Becky. Our reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Dan McDonald, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Toronto. It's my pleasure to bring you uh, the message this morning from the Word. We are doing a series on the glory of the church, and this morning we are talking about the church as God's temple. Well, I still today clearly remember that car ride more than two decades ago. It was on my first visit to the West Coast. I'd been a day or so in Vancouver. It had been drippy and rainy, and I had enjoyed the city, but uh, not fully appreciated it yet. Then the sun seemed to rise, except the clouds. If you've ever been in Vancouver, the clouds were still laying low over the northern mountains, so I couldn't see any of the beauty. But my brother lived in Vancouver, and on the third day, he said, let me pick you up, and we'll go for lunch. And so he picks me up, and I'm in his car, and I think, where are we going? And he says, we're just going to go for a ride. And so we start to drive. And he takes me on what he calls the Sea to Sky Highway. And if you have ever been on the Sea to Sky Highway, it's a finger of road, kind of on the side of a mountain, weaving its way along the contours of the mountainsides. And on the other side, to the left as you go north, is Burrard Inlet and then the Strait of Georgia, a beautiful vista of, of water and islands and what looks like fjords. It is literally one of the most stunning drives in all of Canada. And as, as these islands were arising and leaving in the mist and the sun, we were getting through the clouded part and we were getting to where the sun was really beginning to reflect, I just became speechless. I had no words. And then suddenly he and I, who'd been chatting, he kept chatting and then he stopped and he listened to my silence. And he said, I know, I know. No words, right? No words to see what you're seeing. 
I take all first-time visitors to Vancouver on this drive. And I ask them, why, why do you do that? How do you live with this and not do it every day? And he said, with a sigh, he says, you know, well, it's like this. When you live here, all this beauty becomes familiar. You take it for granted. That's why I like to take newcomers on this drive to remind myself of what we have here. I've never forgotten that drive. I've never forgotten that moment. For too many of us, some of us skeptics and many of us Christians, this is exactly what we do with this thing called the church. We take this staggeringly beautiful, awe-inspiring thing, and we make it all too familiar, and we begin to take it for granted. We groan at having to go to services. Remember pre-COVID? Groaning when the winter comes and the, the, the mornings are still dark and you've been up too late on a Saturday night and you grumble at having to go. You attended a small group when, when it was chilly and wet and you kind of grumbled at leaving so much work left undone while you went to the small group. You remember going to lunch after a Sunday service quietly thinking you deserve better from the worship set, from the sermon, from the coffee time. You remember those times? You think to yourself, why do I keep doing this week after week? Can't they do something different or better? I submit to you, our problem is not the worship music or the preaching, although both could be better, I'm sure. Our problem is not the lack of a smoke machine or the presence of a smoke machine. Our problem is we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten the glory of being God's people. We have allowed to become familiar what the Apostle Peter here wants to remind us should never become familiar. So here Peter takes us a drive down that sea to sky highway, as it were, to remind ourselves of the glory of who God has made us to be, this thing we call the church. Last week we said Jesus calls it his glorious body. This week we want to see Peter reminds us that it's his glorious temple. Verses 4 to 5 give us the theme of the rest of the passage. It's the thesis statement. As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Spiritual house means temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is who we are in the gospel. When you become a Christian, you join, you become part of God's glorious spiritual temple. And as individuals, you are stones in that temple. And then Paul says, I'm going to give you three beautiful, glorious proofs that you are part of God's temple. Firstly, I'm going to tell you about the glorious foundation upon which you as stones are being built. Secondly, I want to talk about the glorious identity you have as God's people and his temple. Thirdly, I want to talk about the glorious purpose we have. Glorious foundation, glorious identity, glorious purpose. Glorious foundation, starting in verse 6. I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting 
several Old Testament passages, some Psalms, Psalm 118, Isaiah 28. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. By the word there, they mean the gospel message as they were destined to do. Peter's saying here that the temple we are now part of has a foundation stone predicted in the Old Testament hundreds of years before he came. A cornerstone, chosen and precious, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is our cornerstone. A cornerstone back in that day was meant to be the the beginning of any foundation of any building. It was the first stone. It was perfectly cut. It had no defects. It was the corner upon which the two first walls were built and it set the angles and it set the straightness of the trajectory for the rest of the building. It was crucial. It was foundational. And Peter says, Jesus is that to us perfectly cut. He is perfect. He is innocent. He is the one upon whom all of this is based. I want to now quote Paul, who tells you why he's our cornerstone. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 to the church in Colossae said this about Jesus, starting in verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you hear that? He is our cornerstone. Listen to who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God, says Colossians chapter 1. We are all made in the image of God, but he is the perfect image of the invisible God. He, when you see him, you see God. You see God in the infinitude of his love. You see the depths of his mercy. You see the unfathomable width of his compassion. You see the unfathomable length of his mercy, that God would become a human being for us, that he would, he would do that, reduce himself to such servitude for us. He says, through him all things were created. Jesus, through him everything was created. He was there, creating at the foundation of the earth. Before time was, he and the Father were creating. When all the angels sang for joy, they were creating. Because of the creation, they were creating. The angels sang for joy. Why were all things created? It says, through him and for him. Everything was created to magnify Jesus, to glorify Jesus. He is the centerpiece of creation, of the cosmos. Everything was made to to manifest His perfections and His beauty, to let the world know how loving and beautiful God is. And Christ came to earth to make sure we knew how loving and beautiful God is. That in all things He might be preeminent, it says. The world was created for the preeminence of Jesus. You were created, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you need to know this. You were created that Jesus might be preeminent. You can't escape that. You can't escape that template. You can't escape that creation order in you. But we don't treat 
our lives, or Jesus that way, do we? So often we make ourselves central. We make our desires preeminent. We fulfill our own agendas. We ignore, and by ignoring, we defy and rebel against the God who made us for himself. But Colossians 1 continues, despite this, this God, this creator who became a human being, who is the image of the invisible God, what does he say? Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you who once were alienated in body and mind, hostile in mind, excuse me, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his own death, that he might present you holy and blameless and above all reproach before God. Do you hear this? God made man, became a scapegoat, and died on a cross that you who defy and ignore Him and make yourself preeminent. You could be cleansed of all your guilt, cleansed of all your selfishness, cleansed of the moral record of wrong that has created alienation between you and God. Jesus Christ gave His life to reconcile you to God. That's why Peter, quoting as I said, Psalm, 28, uh, Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28, other parts, says he's chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Implications here of this great foundation of us being God's temple. Firstly, if you're here and you're investigating Christ, the Christian faith, I need you to hear this. The church is nothing without Jesus. Jesus is the center of the church. If you want to understand what Christianity is, you must go to Him, inquire about Him, confront Him, Him who lived for you, Him who died for you, Him who rose for you, Him who offers to pay for your sin. He's calling you to trust Him with your life. Trust Him with your sin. You can't atone for your own sin. You can't make up for all the wrong you've done. You need Him in what He's done to pay for you. And you can't live a life for Him without inviting Him in and surrendering your life to Him. And so He calls you here to do these two things, to submit your sin to Him and to submit direction of your life to Him. That's why He's called a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A stone of stumbling. How how are you going to submit yourself to Him and humble yourself and say, I've got too much pride, too much wrong, too much sin in my life to face a holy and beautiful God. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need someone to take away that which is offensive to God. That's the stone of stumbling. You have to humble yourself and say, Jesus, pay for my sin. I can't. But secondly, It's a rock of offense because we want to go our own way. We thirst for autonomy. We want to be the rulers of our own lives. Isaiah 53, written 740 years before Jesus set foot on this earth, says, All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord has laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity, the wrong of us all. Do you hear that? 
He doesn't have to be a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. He can be the cornerstone of your new life with God. I need to say, your thirst for autonomy, your thirst for freedom makes you want to stop. But I want you to soberly tremble at this thought. If you are rejecting him, he's not surprised. He's known you from the foundation of the earth. He's known you from the foundation of you. And so, if you're bothered right now by what I'm saying, you who are not yet Christians, if this thing they stumbled as they were destined to do bothers you, you have to face a God who knows everything. He knows exactly what you're going to do. But go beneath being bothered for a moment and ask yourself, what if this is true? What if I was made for God? What if indeed some of my longings, some of my deepest desires that I don't even like to to admit to other people, what if those things are pointers to my deep need for God? John Krakauer, who I've mentioned many times, but if you're new, you've probably not heard this, best-selling New York Times best-selling author in his book, Under the Banner of Heaven, writes this from a completely, as far as I know, secular perspective. If I remain in the dark about our purpose here on earth, And the meaning of eternity, I am nevertheless arrived at an understanding of a few more modest truths. Most of us fear death. Most of us yearn to comprehend how we got here and why. Which is to say, most of us ache, ache to know the love of our Creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache all of our days. Do you hear Him? come to the cornerstone upon which your life was meant to be built. Christians, gaze anew at the glory of the cornerstone upon which your faith is built. Gaze at His beauty. Gaze at Him being the image of the invisible God. Contemplate the fact that He created all things. Contemplate the fact that all things were created for Him. And then contemplate the fact that all things for him were created, and yet He came down and took on human flesh so that you may be given honor simply by believing, so that you may be given eternal life and forgiveness simply by trusting in Him. Trust Him again anew. Surrender your life to Him, our glorious foundation, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Secondly, our glorious identity. Verse 9, he picks up one of the most beautiful, rhetorically powerful verses in all of spiritual literature anywhere. All of the Bible, even. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is your glorious identity as parts of the temple of God and as together the temple of God. Listen, Peter, Peter. So what, what my brother did while we were driving on the Sea to Sky Highway was there'd be a particularly beautiful vista and he would say, oh, there's a little turn off here. We can stop and there's a place to look over and, and just view it. And so we pulled in, we did the little turn off and we just gazed at the glory of the majesty of nature right there. And here, Peter inviting us to do just that, to, to slow down and stop and to gaze 
at the beauty and the glory of who you have been made in Christ. You are a chosen race. You are God's people, his treasured possession. Let me take those two for a minute. From, from all eternity, from before there was time, God set his eyes of love upon us upon you as a person, upon us as a people, as a collective. From all eternity, God has set his love upon you. Christ has determined to give his life for you. The Spirit decided to indwell you in love, to communicate the depth and height of God's love to you for the rest of your life and for all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit conspired together from all eternity to make you theirs. You were chosen. You're a holy nation. Now, if most, most of you probably feel like, like I do, I, uh, I regularly disappoint myself. I, uh, last, even yesterday, I, uh, I thought I had real victory over certain parts of my life, but I got irritable in ways I shouldn't have gotten yesterday. I, I disappointed myself I know I disappointed God. And so I, I'm walking all last night in this quiet disappointment and sensing God's quiet disappointment. But that's not actually how God feels. That's the tape that plays. That's the voice that plays in my brain. God says, I'm part of a holy nation, and so are you. God says to the world, look at my people. They are my holy. Holy here means set apart. They are my set apart people. These are the people that you look to to see my glory. These are the people I've set my special love upon. These are the people I delight in. These are my set apart people. Oh, it's so beautiful. Israel in in the Old Testament was set apart by God and stuck in the middle of the trade routes of the ancient Near East. Why? To be a holy, set apart nation. Like like a lamp set set in the middle of the trail to give light to what? To him. What a privilege. Wherever you live, whomever you interact with, wherever you work or study, whoever friends you have, you are part of this holy nation, this set-apart people. And then it says, a royal priesthood. (laughs) Kings and queens and priests. uh, Crazy. All of us. Each of us. Now, that means so little in our day because we're so skeptical of authority. Um, spiritual authority, people in ecclesiastical authority like priests. We've all heard the scandals. Kings and queens, monarchs, and, and the abuses of power historically. We all know our history. But I want you to go back and read this with the eyes of an original reader. Because in the ears of an original reader... Or the eyes of an original reader, when they saw a priest, they thought, somebody who has a special relationship with God. Somebody who has been appointed by God, chosen by God, set apart by God, to stand between other humans and God. To, to stand in the, in the gap, in the middle. To intercede for people to God. To offer sacrifices for people to God. So that God would forgive them. And God would hear the prayers of the priest for them. The priest was an advocate. The priest had sacrifices. The priest was this powerful mediator between God and humanity. This is what God is saying to each and every person. Once you become a Christian, 
you become God's child, and once you are God's child, you are also God's priest. You have his ear. You have the privilege, the position, the dignity of being someone who can intercede for people who don't know God on behalf of them to God, and God hears you because you're his. You're his priest. You're his beloved child. We have this incredible privilege, this special access Skeptics who don't believe in God don't get to intercede with him. They don't know him yet. People of other religions who don't know God because they don't know him through Jesus, they don't get to be interceders like this. You have this incredible intermediary position, this dignity of having God's ears. Beautiful. But we're not just priests. We're kings and queens. We're God's royalty. We display his worth. We we reflect his dignity. We reflect some of the power and transcendence of God and the dignity of the office. And you see, all these promises were made to Israel. You will be my royal priests. You will be my holy nation. You will be my own people. And now Peter is saying all those promises that originally pointed to Israel, pointed past Israel, to the true Israel. And actually the true Israel is Jesus Christ. But when you become a Christian... You are united to Jesus. By faith, you become part of him. That's what we talked about last week. And so you now become part of the true Israel. You see, all these glorious identity, this royal position that Israel occupied, you occupy, but on a global level. So act that way. You see, act that way. Implication, act that way. Act with the dignity and the transcendence and, 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 the, and the royalty and, and the privilege of being interceders between the world and God. I once heard a speaker. His name was Lionel LeCou. It was back when I was uh, practicing law. He, um, he had been the, the Guyanese ambassador to Great Britain. Um, and he discussed having a meeting with the queen and a bunch of other dignitaries. It was a fascinating story because he was talking about the queen and how she used her royal authority and privilege. She was sitting there, and it was very bunch of dignitaries from a bunch of different places, and there's a very specific etiquette as to how you're supposed to eat and, and act and comport yourself in front of the queen, of course. And then at the end of the meal, and it all went fine, um, the little bowls, the lemon water bowls were brought out to dip your fingers and, and cleanse them before dessert. Well, one of the dignitaries, brand new, from a completely different culture, didn't know what these were for. So she grabbed it, and she drank it. And a frozen, quiet hush went all around the table. And she put it down, and she looked around, and she she began to see something was off. And very quietly, the queen picked up her her lemon bowl, looked around, and drank the cup. And then everybody else, seeing what the queen had done, drank the cup. And they covered, they covered the mistake of this new dignitary. You see how she used her royalty to bless. She used her dignity to dignify. This is who we are. We are royal priests. We're called to intercede for the world. We have the special access to God. We're meant to be royal representatives of, of blessing and covering to the world. 
Let us be this kind of people. Let us be a holy nation. Let us be and know God's treasured possession. Do you know how much God loves you? He sent his son to die for you. And he sent his spirit into you so you could be one with all these other Christians throughout the world and reflect him in all of his royal, dignified, serving love. This is who we are. This is the beauty of our identity as God's people. Now, you may have noticed I skipped one line here if you're reading along, because there's one line which is actually our third point. Peter says that there's a purpose okay, for all this identity, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our third point, our glorious purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his glorious light. Okay, now, purpose, let's talk for a moment. What was the purpose of a temple? He started with this thesis statement that you're a temple, and now he says there's, there's a purpose for you. What's the purpose? The temple gave spiritual sacrifices, he says, acceptable to God, up in the thesis statement here, that you may proclaim the excellencies. He's, he's giving you bookends to tell you what the purpose of a temple is. And I'm going to give you three. There are probably many more, but the three central purposes of the temple, especially the Jewish temple, were these. Firstly, to meet with God and worship him. There was a temple for everybody. There was a temple for the Gentiles. There was a temple for the Jewish people. This is a temple for the the priests and the high priests. But everyone had a place in the temple where they could come and worship God, and if they didn't know him, to come and learn about him and meet him. Secondly, to come and find forgiveness for your sin. The temple was where the sacrifices for the sins of the people were offered by the priests. And God would said that he would pass over the sins. He would forgive the sins. He would, he would not pay back the sins. He would not judge the sins if you offered these sacrifices. It was a place to find atonement, at-one-ment, brought back to oneness with God by the sacrifices. And thirdly, it was meant to be by these two things, the place where God was worshipped and met with, and the place where atonement were sin, where forgiveness was received uh, from God by sacrifices. Thirdly, it was a place where the excellency of God was displayed for the world to see. You see? Those are the three purposes of the temple of Israel. To proclaim the excellencies. God resided there. The Ark of the Covenant was a footstool. It meant God's feet actually resided right in the temple. Of course, the idea was only his feet could fit because God is way too big to fit inside some human temple. But you met God there. These are the three purposes, the three glorious purposes of the church. To be a place where people worship God, meet with God, where people who are learning about the faith can learn to worship God. It's a place to find grace, to find forgiveness for your sin, at-one-ment, atonement for your sin, to find the grace of God as it's delivered and given in Jesus. And finally, it's a place to proclaim the excellencies of God himself to all the nations. That was the temple's purpose. That is the purpose of us as the true spiritual temple. We're everywhere. We're in, almost, we're in every nation that I know of. We're a temple in every nation, to declare the excellencies of God to that nation. And we, Grace Toronto, are in the heart of this 
international city to proclaim the excellencies of God to this city by being this kind of people, a place where people can meet with God and learn about God and worship God and a place where they can find forgiveness for their sin. How do we do this well? Let's apply this. Let's remember what I said partway through, that the temple, the place where God meets humanity, is ultimately fulfilled in the God become human, Jesus Christ. The temple pointed to the true temple. And Jesus told us that when when he was questioned about his identity, who he really was. He said, destroy this temple by which he met my body, and in three days I will raise it up. And Paul in Corinthians told believers that if you have the Spirit of Jesus in you, you are the place, you are the temple of God remade. Jesus is the true temple, and everyone who becomes a Christian and the Spirit indwells them becomes part of that temple. The temple, as it were, resides in them, and they're part of the great temple. It's so beautiful. And of course, Jesus isn't just the place where God and humanity reside. He's the place where forgiveness of sin was fully and finally affected, because Hebrews says that Jesus, for, for all time, made one sacrifice of himself. He gave his infinitely pure, perfect self as a guilt offering. Sufficient to pay for every sin, every sin you've ever done, every sin all of us have ever done. It is a place where atonement was made. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, the apostle, challenges believers to cleanse themselves. Cleanse out the old leaven, he says, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He has made the final sacrifice for all of us. And of course, he's the place where the excellencies of God have been displayed. John chapter 1 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In his life, Christ amazed people. In his death, he astonished them. In his resurrection, he has staggered all of history. And he has remade the cosmos. He has abolished the power of death. Death is no longer the final answer. He has atoned for the sins of the world by his death. And when a spirit comes into us, when we are spiritually united, we can worship God freely. We have full access to God to intercede and pray. We have places of forgiveness and grace in the gospel. And we can be a place where the excellencies of God are displayed. May that be true of us, Grace Toronto. In your small groups, may this, may this characterize you. May you be a, a mini temple where God is worshipped freely, where, where sin is confessed, And forgiveness is is expressed and given and received and felt and applied. And the excellencies of God are encouraged and displayed in what you do. May it be true of our organic communion with each other. Live up to your royal identity, Grace Toronto. Live up your priestly identity. Live up your identity as God's chosen people. Be small groups of prayer. Be small groups of not just socializing, but, but uncovering and admitting sin and giving each other the gospel of Christ's forgiveness so that, that forgiveness is felt. Become little temples. And if you're here and you're a skeptic and you don't yet believe, I get it. It took me a while to believe too. But wouldn't you want it to be true? 
that there's a place where you can meet God face to face, where you can find forgiveness for everything wrong you've ever done and ever will do, where the beauty and love of God can crash down upon you, fill you, and flow out from you. Wouldn't you want that? I submit to you that in your deepest longings and desires, that's exactly what you were made for. That's exactly what your soul is hungering for. Let us be this kind of people for this moment in history. Let us be the temple and reflect the living temple himself, the risen temple, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us and your grace. May we be this kind of people, this kind of temple, and may we remember the glory of what you've made us to be, Lord. It is unbelievable that you've allowed us to be the place where we meet God right in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That when we come together, you are in our midst. When we pray, you allow us this dignity of being royal priests. Help us to be thrilled by the majesty and the dignity and the glory of who we are as a church, a church universal and a church particular. And help us to live this out, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.